above Captain Obvious for obvious reasons. Um, obviously, it's because Captain Obvious makes things obvious for us. And in the clip that you just watched, Captain Obvious introduces us to what he calls the hate-like. Now, in case you missed it in the little commercial there, I'll explain to you what a hate-like is. Now, most of us know what it means to like a picture on Instagram. Someone sends you a photo of their cat or their dish of linguine that they are about to eat, and you look at it, and if you like it, there's a little heart that you find on the screen, and you press that heart, and it lets the person know that you've liked their pictures. Now, a hate-like, according to Captain Obvious, happens when something like this happens. Let's say that your friend sends you a picture of them on a beach in a tropical place on a vacation. Now, you do click the little heart and you do click like because it does look amazing. But you also hate what you're seeing because you're not there. Instead, you're working in a cubicle with no air conditioning and trying to reach a deadline. And so, it's a hate-like. Now, we all have hate-likes when it comes to God as well. And in Acts chapter 8, we're working through the book of Acts together as a congregation. In Acts chapter 8, it begins with a hate-like. So far, most of the pictures that we've seen in the book of Acts have all been likes. Jesus ascending into heaven, the Holy Spirit coming upon the disciples. There are crowds that are hearing the gospel. They're responding in vast numbers. The message that God is fulfilling his Old Testament promises to Abraham is and creating a new people are now being fulfilled. This is all being done through this Jesus person who has brought the kingdom to earth and the beginning stages of that are already beginning to be felt throughout the area around Jerusalem. Thousands are joining God's people through the church. And also miracles and healings are taking place. I mean, these are pictures that you can simply go like, 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 like. They're all wonderful things. But as these Jewish Jesus followers grow, so grows the opposition to them. Primarily, through the Jewish religious leaders of the day. You see, from the perspective of the Jesus movement, these people don't see what they're doing as being starting up a new religion. They see themselves as simply carrying on the great tradition of Abraham. They are the ones that believe they are simply following along with, with the very things that Moses was preparing the people for. The Jesus followers were not claiming to be adherents of a new religion. And that is precisely what the Jewish leaders found threatening. There was a, a, a battle going on, you could say, of who was interpreting Scripture correctly. These Jewish Jesus followers or many of the traditionalists in the Jewish faith that felt that this was a heresy. Now, it's one thing when the general population becomes misguided. 
Religious leaders of all faiths, though they grumble about it when they maybe get together with each other, uh, religious leaders of all faith kind of expect that with the general population. They expect a certain amount of superstition, a, super, uh, a certain amount of ignorance to always be among the masses. But when those superstitions and ignorance starts to creep into their own ranks, into the, the own ranks of the priests, the leaders, that's when concern really begins to raise. And in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, we see that that's actually what's happening. There it says that God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem. Like. But in an often overlooked line, it actually goes on to say, God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem and many Jewish priests were converted to. Think about that. Many of the Jewish priests, the leaders, the establishment, were also beginning to become followers of Jesus Christ. And this is not something that the other leaders could sit by the sides and say, oh, this is just something that's happening among the populace, among the masses, we can just kind of let it go. But it's creeping into those very teachers, the very priests, uh, the people that are our own people. And unlike the cautious advice that Gamaliel suggested when the Jewish leaders got together and talked about what they should do with this new Jesus heresy that was beginning to spread, in the minds of many, including the high priest, this Jesus heresy had to be stamped out. By all means. It was getting out of control. And so in Acts 6, we hear the accusation against Stephen. He's accused of blaspheming Moses. He's accused of speaking against the laws of Moses. He's accused of wanting to change the customs of Moses that were handed down to them. And precisely, this is where the debate's at. Because Stephen doesn't say, no, 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 it has nothing to do with Moses. I'm just starting a new faith. Stephen doesn't say that at all. Instead, what Stephen does is he tells Israel's story. And when he tells Israel's story, he says, no, no, you got it wrong. It's you who are not following Moses. I'm actually the one following Moses precisely because I'm following Jesus. Moses leads to Jesus. You are the ones that are rejecting Moses precisely because you are the ones rejecting Jesus. Well, this leads to a violent reaction. They drag Stephen out of the city. They stone him to death. And then, this is how chapter 8 begins. This is all the prelude up to chapter 8. It follows the stoning of Stephen by these words, a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. While all these likes in the first few chapters of Acts, and then all of a sudden a great persecution, a wave of persecution, swept over the church in Jerusalem. Something the church quickly learns to hate like. 
Now, when speaking about persecution, we have to be careful to not be trite with our cliches when it comes to persecution, especially when we live in a part of the world where we are not persecuted, or if we are persecuted, it is extremely light persecution. See, I grew up in a comfortable church and lived in a comfortable neighborhood, went to a comfortable public school, and with all this comfort, sometimes I would hear church people say things in church like this. You know what the church needs today? You know what our church here in the West needs today? Persecution. Persecution, that's what we need. That would wake us up, and that would weed out all the the, the fake Christians from the real Christians. Yes, Christians do talk like that sometimes. Now, ironically, it would be those same people who would whine about prayer being taken out of the school. And that always confused me as a kid because I'm like, I thought you wanted persecution. Um, Even though I don't think taking prayer out of school is persecution. Uh, But it would be weird because as soon as any kind of pressure or any kind of um, uh, pushback by by government or by non-Christian friends would come along, it would be these very people who on one hand say that we need it, that would then be the most outspoken about how terrible this was. And so it was very confusing as a kid. But the idea that persecution is always good for the church is simply not true. Nor is it something that any reasonable Christian should ever wish for. Instead, we should speak constantly with a consistent voice against all forms of persecution. Philip Jenkins has shown in a number of his works how persecution has at times brought the almost complete disappearance of Christianity to certain parts of the world. One example he gives is the country of Turkey. A century ago, Christians were around 20% of the population in Turkey, whereas today it is around 0.2% of the population in Turkey. Most of the decrease, almost all of the decrease, has been because of persecution. People either have been killed, destroyed, or have had to flee the country. 2009, Andrew Bernson, who became a missionary to Turkey, only to then be imprisoned in 2016, has come out with a recent book called God's Hostage, a true story of persecution, imprisonment, and perseverance. And in this story, he talks about how he felt so strongly God's call in 2009, and then in his imprisonment, how much he struggled with hearing God or whether he heard God right and what God was doing. In a recent interview, he says, it's especially important to guard against resentment in cases like this when he's in prison. He said, there I felt abandoned by God. And in those circumstances, it was easy to let my heart grow cold. My crisis of faith wasn't a matter of being imprisoned, It was more the feeling of abandonment. I had expected strength to pour into me. I had expected to feel an overwhelming sense of grace, and this didn't happen. And when it didn't happen, I became suicidal. 
I mean, these are the real stories of persecution. Then there are the women in the Christian village of Caligari in northern Cameroon who recently had their ears sliced off by the terrorist group Boko Haram. Then I could go on and on and on with these terrible stories. Real-life stories like that should warn us, particularly in the West, of making trite comments that say that we wish we had more persecution in the church because that would kind of clean things up. It's insensitive, and it's just not true to the true facts. Now, with that warning, we're going to look at a time when persecution did help the church in Acts chapter 8. Now, this is not a contradiction of what I just said, because there are times that persecution really does help the church. It's not a contradiction. What it is is it's complicated, Like everything in life, it's complicated. Things are not simple. And issues of persecution are not simple and can be put into nice little categories. It's complicated. It's a good reminder that whether it's persecution, or whether it's sickness, or whether it's someone's journey that's struggling with doubt, trite, simple answers never help things are complicated. With Stephen being the first one killed for his faith in Jesus, Acts 8 follows up by describing a great wave of persecution sweeping over the church of Jerusalem. Heading up this persecution is a man and an up-and-coming young religious leader by the name of Saul. When those who killed Stephen dragged him out of the city to stone him, it says that they took off their coats and they laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then in the beginning of chapter 8, it says that Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Followed by, Saul was going around everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. We're going to hear a lot more about Saul as the book of Acts continues. But we see Saul as one of the primary instigators and enforcers of the persecution. Which is quite interesting because he says that Gamaliel was his mentor. And Gamaliel was actually the one that was saying, hey, let's just sort of you know, kind of go a little bit light here in this thing. Maybe we'll just burn itself out. Um, Saul obviously didn't take the advice of his own mentor, Gamaliel, and said, we need to actively stamp this out. Now, when we read about all of this, the first reaction that a text like this should give us is one of empathy. When we hear about this persecution uh, that starts to sweep over the church, it should remind us of our brothers and sisters like Andrew Burtson and those Cameroonian women and the hundreds and hundreds of thousands over the years that have suffered for their faith. Just as verse 2 says that some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. Sometimes we can live in a little bit of denial about the pain and the suffering and the heartache 
Though Stephen died for his faith, this was no celebration of life service, but an acknowledgement of death, especially death by persecution. They knew as they took Stephen's broken body and they buried him with great mourning that something's wrong with this world. And death is one of the things wrong with this world. Persecution is one of the things wrong with this world. And so something that devout people should properly do is know when to mourn. At the same time, and because we have the advantage of hindsight, we also see that this great persecution that sweeps over the church in Acts chapter 8 is going to be something that God is going to use to spread his message to the rest of the world. It's a hate-like snapshot of our sometimes hate-like feelings towards God. The Bible has many descriptions of God that we try to ignore because they make us uncomfortable. That's also why, other than they're also because they can be confusing at times, it's also why we kind of stay away from the prophets in the Old Testament. Because there's so many things the prophets say, or even God himself through the prophets, that just doesn't fit the God that we've made in our image. In Isaiah 45, 6, and 7, God says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I create the light, and I make the darkness. I send good times, and I send bad times. I bring prosperity, and I create disaster. I, the Lord, am the one who does these things. What do we do with stuff like that? God himself saying it. I think that's a definite hate-like. I mean, anyone who hits like when they hear that about God, creating disaster and sending bad times, just annoys everybody else around them with their high-sounding piety. Because that's uncomfortable. We shouldn't like that. Though... We have to acknowledge that God is God and he's the one that's in ultimate control. Rather than try to explain these uncomfortable traits about God away just so that we can be more comfortable with him. And in Acts chapter 8, the persecution that comes is one of these hate-likes. Persecution is an evil thing sponsored by evil people and evil spirits, and yet it is all controlled and organized by God to accomplish his will. Now, tomes have been written on trying to understand this puzzle. And no one has ever been able to adequately, adequately explain that. And this morning, one of the things that I get to do as a preacher rather than a teacher is I just get, simply get to proclaim the truth, not explain how it's true. And so this morning I'm simply proclaiming, not explaining, that this is who God is and what God does and how God acts. And it's a hate-like. With Acts 8, persecution 
accomplishes three things. We see the church scattered and the good news of Jesus being preached, it says, wherever they went. We also see evil spirits being cast out and the lame being healed. And we also see new life being birthed. And so it says that great joy was brought to Samaria. As John Stott writes about this passage, he says, What is plain is that the devil, who lurks behind all persecution of the church, overreached. His attack had the opposite effect of what he intended. Instead of smothering the gospel, persecution succeeded only in spreading the gospel. And the first place Jesus' message spread beyond Jerusalem was to Samaria. Now, we have to understand that the original church was made up of all Jewish believers. These were all Jews who had come to faith in Jesus Christ, so you could say they were pure Jews. But the mission the early church struggled with was that Jesus came not just for the Jews, but that he came for all people. In fact, God's original promise to Abraham was to be a blessing to all nations, not just the Jews. Although the early church is going to struggle with this. And not only that, but when non-Jews become followers of Jesus, they also did not have to practice the Jewish religious ceremonies. In fact, Paul even discourages them from practicing the religious and culturally Jewish rituals and ceremonies. Now, it's going to take the rest of the book of Acts for, and Paul's letters for the church to try to figure out what this all means. Just as we today still wrestle with what is cultural, what is Christian. I mean, that's been the age-old struggle in the church for every generation. And every time we go out to different people groups. And it's what a huge chunk of the New Testament is all about. And so through persecution, God pushed his church out of this Jew-only church. It was comfortable. Everybody sort of knew and each other well. They had the same kind of rituals, the same kinds of practices, the same kind of habits, the same kind of culture, the same kind of background. And it was nice and comfortable. But now persecution comes and this Jew-only Christian circle is going to be pushed out to the people of Samaria. Now the Samaritans, like Jews, could trace their line back to Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob. The people of Samaria came from the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, where the Jews came from the tribe of Judah. So these are all part of the same family. But what had happened with the Samaritans is that after the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh fell to the Assyrians about 700 years before Jesus came on the scene in the story of the Gospels, when, the, when they fell, the northern tribes of Israel or Ephraim and Manasseh and those other tribes, when they fell to the Assyrians, most of those people, if not all of those people, began to intermarry 
with the Gentile nations around them. And so the Samaritans are these intermarried northern Israel people who have, quote-unquote, corrupted their bloodline by all these other Gentiles coming into their bloodline. So the Jews, the people from Judah, looked at the Samaritans as kind of half-breeds. And, and half-breed would be even generous. By the time all these years had come by, there may be even only a, some sliver of their true ancestry in them. And so they were looked upon as unclean, compromisers, possibly not even worthy of Jesus. Maybe some of these Jewish first Christians thought Jesus had come, he's the Messiah, for those of us who had preserved the line and had not compromised and intermarried. And so the persecution of chapter 8 is going to push them out of that safety zone. It's going to push them out of the comfort of, this is for people like me, to we are going to people unlike me. Even people I have issues with. People I have prejudices against. And note that in God's plan, this is only step one. I mean, the Samaritans, though they are different from the Jews, are still close. This is only step one because God, it's almost like the Samaritans are the training ground. Because after the Samaritans, God's going to start pushing them out to people that are even more different from them. They're going to be going out to all the different Gentiles. And that's when things begin to get really crazy. You think the Samaritans are different? Just wait till you start going and bringing the gospel to the Gentiles who are not like you in any way. And then you have to start wrestling with your customs and ideas and culture as we see later in Acts as well. Going to Samaria is training for something that eventually will be much more uncomfortable. And when Jesus' message comes to Samaria, we read that great joy fills the people of Samaria. God had not abandoned them. God was still calling them to join his one true Abraham family. Think about that good news. The people of Samaria were waiting for the Messiah as well. Maybe some of them wondered if they had compromised through their father's lines of all the intermarriage. But here the gospel, the Messiah had come for the Samaritans just as much for the Jews. And God was calling them to join Abraham's family, not by the purity of the bloodline, but by faith. Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles can be part of Abraham's family by faith in Christ. This preaching was then accomplished by many healings, the exorcism of demons. And remember, in the Bible, whenever we hear about miracles and things like that, they're never simply magic tricks. They're never meant to be just standalone events to make us go, cool, do another trick. They're always there because they have symbolic purpose and meaning to the rest of the story. They symbolize more than just the miracle. And the miracles here given to the Samaritans is a foretaste of the future coming of God's kingdom. 
where there will be no more death, there'll be no more disease, there'll be no more evil powers, that all of these things are beginning already to be destroyed and eradicated. And eventually, one day will be completely annihilated. The kingdom of God has come, and all of those evil forces, all of those things that are wrong with this world, are already beginning to be dealt with. Victory has come to the Jews, but victory has also come to the Samaritans. And the message is going to be proclaimed that victory is also there for the Gentiles. Victory is a message for the ends of the earth. God will even use persecution to scatter the seeds of his message. As the late first century Jewish book, The Apocalypse of Baruch, says, I will scatter this people among the Gentiles, that they may do good to the Gentiles. The ways of God can often be a hate-like. The ways of God can be Something that at the same time that we rejoice in and that we embrace at the same time make us very uncomfortable. It's why in today's passage we can read about great mourning as the church buried Stephen. And in the same eight verses we read about great joy as they go to Samaria and witness many of the people becoming Christ followers. It's a hate-like. It's as Tamara and, and, and Wiley mentioned, and anybody that's involved in mission work, or as pastors, or even any of you working with some of your friends and children or people at work, it's why I often ask the question, what are some of your joys and some of your frustrations? Because rarely do we only live in one of those. In the same eight verses, you've got on one end, great mourning, and on the other end, great joy. And a lot of living for Christ is living in the tension of both of those. It's a hate-like. In 1949, when the national government was defeated by the communists in China, 637 Chinese inland mission missionaries were obligated to leave. Some of them nationals, some of them foreign missionaries. They were all forced to leave by the communist government. But even under severe persecution the church in China began to multiply. And today, it totals 30 to 40 times the number in the church in China today than when the missionaries were forced to leave and all that persecution that followed. It's a hate-like. And it also raises questions that we will never fully understand. Why does China go that way but when persecution comes to the church in Turkey, it goes the opposite way. Who knows? There's no guarantee to say when persecution comes, it's going to go the way that it has in China. 
because sometimes it goes the way that it does in Turkey. God's God we cannot understand. As our teachers in the church keep reminding us, the church father Chrysostom said that the doctor, like God, is not only commended when he leads his patient into gardens and meadows and sets before him a well-furnished table, but also when he confines him to his bed, when he cuts and cauterizes and brings him bitter medicines. It's a hate-like. I mean, don't we really all have hate-likes with the hospital? We're all glad we have hospitals, but no one wants to go there. It's a hate-like. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, very descriptive and often humorous way of putting things, says, what do people mean when they say, I'm not afraid of God because I know he's good? Have they never been to the dentist? It's a hate-like. We love our dentists, but we hate them because they do good things to us, but often good things that can be painful and uncomfortable. Another Bible teacher, Robert Jensen, says, and I think this is so important for us to remember, gospel messengers can only say, we are not here to entice you into our religion by the benefits allegedly found in it. Isn't that how we sometimes do things, kind of bait and switch? If you come, you'll get this. He says, we are not here to entice you into our religion by the benefits allegedly found in it. We are here to introduce you to the true God for whatever he decides to do with you, which may well be suffering and oppression. Wow, sign me up. It's a hate-like. And so we pray for the persecuted church. We do not wish persecution on anyone. We speak out against persecution. We be careful with our words and not think simplistically as persecution as a good evangelism strategy. We sympathize with those who have suffered greatly. We become involved in organizations and movements that bring awareness and push to stop persecution. And we assist and we help and we rescue people out of persecution. Yet all the while remembering the words of another church father by the name of Tertullian in a line that is often but not always true. When Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's a hate-like. Let's pray. Father, it's uncomfortably true to realize that the word for witness and the word for martyr are one and the same in the Greek. That you have called us to be witnesses and often how we witness is by laying down our life. Not always, Lord, does that mean physically dying, laying down our life, although at times it does, but, but Lord, it also means laying aside 
so much of ourself for the sake of others. Lord, we pray that we will be good witnesses, that we will be people, even though we don't always like it, we'll be people that lay down our own selves for the sake of others and ultimately because of you and what you've called us to. And Lord, we want to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world today in many countries like in Turkey still, North Korea and China, other places, Nigeria, where immense persecution continues to happen. Families are separated, children are killed, wives are raped, people are maimed and harmed. Lord, these are our brothers and sisters in the faith. We pray for their protection. We pray for organizations to stand up and protect these people, Lord. We pray that you change the hearts of the persecutors because, God, one of the greatest miracles in Scripture is the miracle of Saul, the instigator of the persecution in Acts 8, who ends up becoming one of the greatest champions of Christ, which also shows you the extent of your forgiveness. And so, Lord, we pray for those persecuted, and we pray, God, that we will be witnesses for you. And we'll stand against persecution, but we'll also stand for you and be willing to face whatever persecution may come our way. Give us strength and courage in those times. And may we leave the rest up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.